Welcome to In the Foreground, Conversations on Art and Writing. I am Carol Fowler, your host and director of the Research and Academic Program at the Clark Art Institute in Williamstown, Massachusetts. In this series of conversations, I talk with art historians and artists about what it means to write history and make art and the ways in which making informs how we create not only our world, but also ourselves. In this episode, you'll hear from me, Caitlin Woolsey, Assistant Director of the Research and Academic Program. I speak with Sarah Hamill, a scholar of modern and contemporary art who is a professor at Sarah Lawrence College, about the role of description in art history and how description is always a form of interpretation. The embodied experience of sculpture captured Sarah's imagination, and she describes how she came to understand the role of photography in mediating our encounters with art objects. She also discusses her current research into feminist politics, media, and sculpture in the 1970s, focused on the artist Mary Miss. Finally, Sarah reflects on how art historical practices like slow looking may express an aesthetics of care that helps us grapple with urgent issues today, like the climate crisis. Description is always a form of interpretation also. So it was in that class too that I became aware and attuned to photographs as mediating sculptures as part of a kind of sculptural medium that photographs are another form of projection, a way of thinking about a kind of sculptural fantasy or a sculptural documentation, a way of seeing sculpture that is not tied to the object itself, but that shapes how we encounter objects in the world. Thank you so much for joining me today, Sarah. It's a real pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Caitlin. As you know, I'm a huge fan of this podcast. Well, as you know, we usually start by asking people generally to speak a bit about their orientation towards art history or toward the arts more broadly? So I actually took an art history course in high school. It was an AP art history course, but not in the way that the curriculum is now kind of formally conceived. We read Jansen, so we got this kind of larger trajectory, this kind of bigger history throughout. This was a year-long course. But I think what was so exciting about that class for me was the possibility that we could have detailed, close conversations about works of art. It was sort of in that class that I found my people in high school. It was taught by a painting teacher, actually, Alan Fitzpatrick. I was really excited to take classes in English. For example, I took this seminar that was focused entirely on Virginia Woolf, this kind of like feminist approach to close reading. So this art history course was really this kind of entry into really thinking about art objects as something that could be an object of study. And I would say too that one of the other things about that time that was so important, and this is why I think this class was so crucial to me, is that the school that I went to, I was sort of experiencing this transition towards co-education in this previously all-male boarding school, this elite school that I was going to. I was the daughter of one of the teachers. My mother was one of the second women hired by that school. We actually lived in the first all-girls dorm of seniors to graduate in 1988. And then I began that school several years later. So it was very new to co-education and I really struggled with 
what I saw to be incredible inequities in terms of how women were treated and also um, just seeing incredible inequities in race and class at that institution. That institution has obviously done a lot of work in the last 25 years to change, but I think my experience of it was really formative in terms of building a kind of feminist consciousness you know, really thinking about power structures and institutions at that time. I started a kind of feminist group on campus when I was there to raise awareness around questions of inequity. So I think that those two experiences made me want to seek out art history at Reed College. I chose Reed because it was very different from this kind of bastion of white male privilege that I saw that that kind of East Coast elitist school. While I'm very grateful for the kind of education that I got there, I also am critical of that. Reed was so different because it was historically a progressive institution and it really valued a kind of intellectual seriousness that perhaps was taken too far at moments. Like there was a kind of seriousness in the students on Friday and Saturday nights, we would be in the library until 11 o'clock at night and then go to the bar. But it was there that I really deepened my work in art history. One of my first classes was with Peter Parshall, who taught there for many, many years before he left, I think in my junior year, to go to the National Gallery of Art as the curator of old master prints and drawings. and. I vividly remember an assignment that he gave us that was connoisseurial in nature. It was in a, a course on, I believe, on early Netherlandish art. And he gave us a photocopy of a unidentified print or drawing that we then had to compare and contrast with the Max Friedlander 14 volume and develop a kind of connoisseurial eye to be able to identify the drawings artist. And I think what was so informative about that was this practice of slow looking, of searching the image for clues, really thinking about what it means to attend to a visual object in detail. Um, so at Reed, I had a broad range of interests in art history. I studied East Asian art with a depth and an intensity that I thought I was going to go to graduate school. Took Mandarin, studied Mandarin in China, studied Chinese humanities and history, which really kind of gave me the sense of cultural difference. I think it was taking that art history class on literati painting with Sao Xing Yuan and really kind of immersing myself in that work. It was definitely there that I became interested. I think ultimately I left that behind because I had this worry that I, you know, as a white Westerner, I would never be able to accurately account for those objects in detail. I'm not sure if I would make the same decision now, but then I definitely had that feeling. And then towards my senior year, I became very interested in critical theory. I took this incredible survey of critical theory with William Ray. So at Reed, every student writes a thesis and I decided to focus mine on aesthetic theory and focusing on this debate between Walter Benjamin and Theodore Adorno on the aesthetic response of shock and shudder. 
Adorno's response to Benjamin Schock would be shudder, which he argued was a more dialectical response. So I became very interested in the debates between them, in closely reading their texts. I don't think I had any original ideas in that thesis. I don't think I actually talked about any artworks, as my committee suggested I do, to really connect it back to art history. But looking back at that thesis, I think what it really shows is that I was so interested in thinking about this question of a kind of physiological response to artworks. I feel like during these earlier years, I was really interested in thinking about, well, what is art? How do we think about what an art object is? How do we think about its relationships to a broader social, political, historical context? How do we situate it in those contexts? But also, how do we kind of theorize the object's power? So I think this thesis was really trying to think about a kind of physiological response. Um, one that I would say I found in graduate school at Berkeley all the more in writing about sculpture through Ann Wagner's seminars. If I can take you back just for a moment to when you were speaking about your first experience with art history, were there specific texts or critical methodologies that you found most exciting? Or was it more just the horizon of possibility of a kind of awareness of structural or systemic inequity and the kind of possibility of a feminist approach that might offer other ways of close reading or close looking? I don't think there were any texts in particular that stand out because we were really basing our work on a kind of Janssen survey. It was a very small class. I don't think there were more than eight students in that class. And the students were mostly artists. And I think what it made possible was the sense that like art could be valued as a form of discourse more generally, and that it could be almost a site of resistance. I almost thought of that class as a site of resistance. But then it was perhaps the tools of close reading and that I found in literature in the Virginia Woolf seminar, for example, that helped me understand what it means to slowly unpack something and attend to it on its own terms. How do you think about that in hindsight, looking back at that moment and why or how that unfolded? So at Berkeley, I was admitted to work with Elizabeth Honig and I was studying early Netherlandish art with her, as well as I took, for example, a seminar in rhetoric in the rhetoric department at Berkeley with Kaja Silverman on Deleuze, I believe. And so I was really kind of continuing this trajectory of early Netherlandish as well as theory. But in the fall of 2001, I took a seminar with Anne Wagner on modern sculpture. It was a seminar that she was teaching around the development and writing of her book, A Modern Stone. And this was a seminar that was like really thinking about both historiography and objects. And it was also the year that Alex Potts's The Sculptural Imagination was published. Um, we were instructed to read Krauss before the semester began, I believe. And then we worked our way through Alex Potts while also reading a lot of Anne's work and other art historians. And I think it was in that seminar that I really got this kind of close view of really thinking about what a sculpture was. I should say too that Anne's attention to the object itself meant that I was really encouraged to shed my 
theoretical skin. It was through this kind of really close attention to what an object was, what a sculptural object was, that I really developed this interest in a kind of phenomenological approach to objects. This seminar opened a whole world for me, and I decided to then switch and focus on modern and work with Anne. Elizabeth Honig was such an exacting and kind mentor, and I learned a great deal from her, and I think it was quite incredible then that this shift was possible at Berkeley at the time. I vividly remember going to the de Young Museum with Anne's seminar and looking closely at a Henry Moore large reclining figure that was carved in wood. And it was, you know, through these conversations that I began to build this vocabulary of sculpture to think about presence and absence, to think about um, surface and bodies, that this was a large scale kind of hulking thing that was also polished and smooth, that it looked like this body, but also a natural form that was carved by water that had holes, that it was hard to see it all at once as a total thing, that it required these different vantage points. When I think about the medium of sculpture, I always think about something that Alex Potts wrote. I believe it was David Smith's sculpture, Australia, that it kind of impinges on the, the beholder, that it is something that could potentially intrude into the beholder's space. That's a very different model of thinking about sculpture than something that is small and could be held in one's hand. So I was interested in these different modes, like how do we describe ways in which sculpture activates as a bodily medium, as something that, that intrudes in space, or that asks us to think about something that is small in size, or as something that is architectural in size that engulfs the beholder. So I was interested in these kinds of sensorial responses. And I think it was through really closely accounting for the artwork on its own terms and really shedding that critical theory skin that this knowledge came into being. And then thinking too about photographs as shaping how we see the sculptures. I was writing at the time um, a seminar paper on David Smith's photographs of his nudes, which analogized the female body to a sculpture. And I remember the excruciating work that it took in order to describe those because I was trying so hard to find my own voice as a writer and how hard it was to find a language to describe that artwork, to translate it into a text, to kind of understand that description is always a form of interpretation also. So it was in that class too that I became aware and attuned to photographs as mediating sculptures, as part of a kind of sculptural medium that photographs are another form of projection, a way of thinking about a kind of sculptural fantasy or a sculptural documentation, a way of seeing sculpture that is not tied to the object itself, but that shapes how we encounter objects in the world. I think one of the things that I learned at Berkeley was that the artwork itself is discursive, that it has its own kind of argument or it has something to say about its social, political, historical surroundings. And so being attentive to the object means recovering that in the best way possible. I also think that description is something that we thought about quite a bit 
in seminars with Ann Wagner and Tim Clark, the ways in which writing is a kind of method, the craft of writing, but also the kind of method of writing was part of the discussion at Berkeley. And to think about description as something that is capable of translating an object and interpreting it but that the object will also remain recalcitrant to that, or that it's always a kind of failure, right, of interpretation. So I think that 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 very practice was part of our discussions. And I've begun to think more recently about that, like through the work of Tina Compton and others, to think about the kind of ethics of care that slow looking is tied to or makes possible that attention becomes a kind of politics that really gets to you know why why art history matters and and what art history can make possible but i think that leaving behind critical theory of course it was never really left behind it was just that this this object oriented focus became so critical to me and I think it's something that I'm constantly wrestling with, like, am I slowing down enough? Am I really attentive to that object? What more can be said? How can I go back to it, you know, multiple times to really think it through in a careful way? I'm incorporating slowness as a practice into writing. And I also wonder too, like, how could art history lean into that contradiction all the more? You know, if we think of the emergence of art history as a discipline, as a kind of scientific discipline in the 19th century, I mean, one thing that comes to mind is what you're talking about is this kind of drive towards objectivity of overcoming those subjective impressions um, or systematizing them or making them universal. And yet we are all marked subjects who are looking. And I think that, um, you know, there's been some really interesting writing recently. I mean, Tina Comp to go back to, to her work or kind of like listening to Stephen Nelson talk about his recent book would be another example of work that does attend to that subjective position. To pick back up on something that you said earlier about the relation between photography and sculpture, I wonder if you might unfold a little bit more some of your thinking about mediation of photography. And I think too about the ways in which photography both perhaps is and isn't like language in terms of being always a descriptive act that is a document, but always in translation, as you said. When I was writing my dissertation, I became very interested in thinking about photography's invisibility, thinking about the ways in which we take photography to be neutral, to, to be a kind of exact document. I began to realize that all of Smith's photographs, so he took photographs of all of his sculptures, multiple images, and used them as a kind of archive of his work. And that archive was then used by Rosalind Krauss, as far as I can understand it, to write her dissertation and catalogue raisonné, which was produced as part of her dissertation. So you can look at the pictures in the catalogue raisonné and recognize that a large majority of them are by David Smith. And yet none of these photographs had really been attended to as things that do that work of translation, of shaping how we see that object. So I was really interested in this kind of multiplicity and how a photograph could be a document 
of an object, that it could certify the object, that it could stand in for the object in some way as that kind of indexical quality that photography is theorized, but that it could also really shape how we see it, that it could be a work of interpretation like that act of description. But I think that photography's devices are rather different if we think about framing or the vantage point that what is included in the frame, like for example, in a photographic detail, that could be seen to radically magnify or fragment an object, completely detach it, crop it out from its larger spatial setting and turn it to an abstract plane, abstract it into an image. Or a vantage point, you know, designates many, many vantage points that we could inhabit to see a sculpture chooses only one of them. So it delimits a spatial and temporal, an experience that happens in space, but in a long duration. So what does it mean to look at a photograph of a sculpture that that kind of reduces that experience or captures it in only one spatial vantage point? And I think Smith explored this question in different ways in his photographs. But he definitely developed a signature style, which I found so interesting to be able to identify as something that was part of how his work was disseminated and part of how Rosalind Krauss wrote about his work. You know, I think that his kind of signature style, which photographed his sculpture from a very low vantage point and then monumentalized or magnified it as this pictorial image and flattened it to a single plane that way of seeing his sculpture through photography was then so important for how Rosalind Krauss wrote about his work as a disjunctive image. And I find that to be a fascinating historiographical question of how photography can impact and shape or has impacted and shaped how we write about objects too. The photograph makes possible the study of the object to really see it and think about it but then it also reduces this experience of it. I mean, another way to think about it would be that it really shapes a kind of argument about the object. We could think about the ways in which art historians have used photographs to tell a story about sculpture. This is something that my collaborator on, on our sculpture and photography volume, Megan Luke, is writing about in her work on Carol of Gideon Velker, to think about how there's a visual argument in the photographs about sculpture. Would you like to speak a little bit about how you're thinking about photography in relation to some of your current research and writing about the Mary Miss project? I feel like that project has allowed me to return to sculpture. I'm attentive to the mediation and I'm attentive to how Miss, you know, she has this incredible archive of photographs that she took, but also clippings, as well as an incredible library. So I'm really interested in photography in this project through the ways in which she's using it and her own research of sites of things that she was sort of borrowing and appropriating and thinking through and using in her sculpture. But I think this project, what's so exciting to me is returning to the materiality of objects and thinking about how we encounter them in space. Of course, she also worked in film and so I'm films of sculptures or films that are creating sculptures. So I'm also thinking through film and the durational qualities of film as a way of returning again to the mediation of space in photography. And of course, one of the problems is that most of these don't exist anymore. And so my own encounter with them also has to account for the very limited photographs that I am 
looking at them through the photographs that remain of these temporary objects. So my own experience with them is mostly, I mean, there's about four of them from the 70s, the long 1970s that still exist, but it's largely through the photographic mediation and the textual accounts of them at the time that I'm kind of reconstructing on the page these objects. This project also allows me to really think about a feminist art history and to think about what that practice looks like now. I think about this question so much in my teaching because so many of us are really grappling with what it means to tell the story of modernism now and really thinking about the ways in which value has been constituted and the exclusionary biases of the institutions of art history and the museum. So what does it mean to tell the story of modernism and how do we do so in a way that accounts for multiple histories and counts for difference, accounts for, you know, brings in marginalized and underrepresented histories, um, and does so in a way that challenges the, you know, that isn't simply a revisionist account, but challenges the kind of structure of the canon. One of the questions that I'm grappling with in my own work is how to return to an overlooked feminist history in a way that insists on its difference, insists on its recalcitrance. So, for example, thinking about Mary Miss, her work and the work of other abstract feminist sculptors that were working alongside her, their work was marginalized from histories of white feminism in the 1970s because of their abstraction, because they were not making work that was about the body. This work was also marginalized from histories of land art. And I think that is a really interesting question, thinking about what Mrs. relationship to land art is and how she was insisting on the time and making work that was close to urban centers that could access a broad public. She was reading land art at the time to be a masculinist discourse that was looking at the quote-unquote emptiness of the West. In today's terms, we would think about her critique as critiquing land art almost along the lines of a kind of settler colonial approach. There's been multiple exhibitions that seek to expand the definitions of land art and do so in a way that accounts for a much broader set of practices, and I think that's a really valuable approach. But at the same time, we need to account for the recalcitrance or the ways in which Mrs. Work is critiquing land art. So just methodologically speaking, I think these are really interesting questions for the discipline, for those of us who are really thinking about what it means to teach these histories, but also what it means to write feminist art history and how a kind of revisionism doesn't necessarily really really make sense or work for artists who are producing work in ways that critiques those dominant mainstream narratives. And I know that one of your current projects or roles at Sarah Lawrence is bound up in these questions of sustainability and the environmental and how they intersect with social justice and the humanities more broadly, even outside art history. I am immersing myself in a lot of the writing around care, and I'm actually co-curating an exhibition on care and climate justice for Sarah Lawrence for next year that really gets at these questions of attention and the kinds of ethics of care and how a kind of aesthetics of attention could be a way of thinking through what it means to inhabit this world that we live in um, and face 
the crisis of climate justice. At Sarah Lawrence, I am really excited to have urgent conversations in the classroom about issues that students are facing now, have faced and will continue to face once they leave Sarah Lawrence. Right now for me, you know, not only does that mean revising the canon and, and really thinking about questions of anti-racism in the classroom, but that also means in this climate justice initiative that we're working on in collaboration with Bronx Community College to think about collaborative pedagogies. I'm working with several colleagues on this and one of the inspirations for me for this work was reading Judith Butler's work on interdependence and vulnerability and an essay that she wrote for Time magazine specifically on the climate crisis and thinking about how collaboration is a tool that is needed in our individualistic, capitalist, competitive society to face the challenge of climate crisis. So collaborative pedagogies are central to how we're thinking about having conversations about climate justice. This means collaborating between classrooms, collaborating between institutions, having collaboration part of the assignments that students do, and really valuing collaboration, which is not something historically that has been valued in the academy. But I think that what's exciting to me is that we can have these conversations in the classroom and we can use the tools of art history, for example, of slowness, of attention, of a kind of ethics of care, of close reading, to think through and look at works that help us understand the climate crisis. This fall, I taught a seminar that had to do with land and landscape and thinking about the ideologies of landscape as well as indigenous and black responses to that through um, a whole range of contemporary works and thinking about reparative landscapes. And then in the spring, I'm teaching much more closely related to the intersections between art and science um, and what it means to visualize what sometimes seems to be an invisible occurrence, something that seems to be happening far away that is not related to major urban populations and yet is. And then also having conversations with students about the inequities of climate crisis to think about how those who are most impacted black and brown communities in the United States as well as across the globe are those who are least responsible for producing the climate crisis. So how do we have those conversations in the classroom? And I think that an art history seminar is absolutely the place where students can have those conversations. And they make possible this very rich and layered conversation where students can bring their own knowledge, their individual knowledge and experience or perception of these major historical crises into the conversation to impact how we're understanding these works. I think that through my teaching and also through my research, one of the things that I'm really excited about is how we can return to canonical ways of looking with fresh eyes to think about these questions of colonization, to edge towards a decolonized art history, always with a kind of knowledge that it's not fully possible. I'm really excited by the work that's being done within my own subfield of modern and contemporary around the 1970s and land art, the possibilities that have been open for thinking about critiques of land art by Ian Borland and Alicia Harris to think about questions of the dispossession of land and the experience of indigenous Americans 
and how that discourse of land art can be rethought along those lines. I'm really also excited about work by Sasha Scott and others that returns to, for example, Georgia O'Keeffe to rethink some of the ways in which her work or, or other artists participates in a kind of colonizing rhetoric. So I think that means that there's so many unanswered questions for those of us who work in particular on American modernism and post-war art to rethink that field, to raise hard questions about it in ways that have the potential to really broaden out the field and challenge us to think differently about it. Thank you so much for speaking with me, Sarah. You are someone that I really admire, just how you move through the world as a very generous thinker and interlocutor. Thank you so much, Caitlin. It's such a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you for listening to In the Foreground, conversations on art and writing. For more information about this episode and links to the books, articles, and artworks discussed, please consult clarkart.edu slash rap slash podcast. This program was produced by me, Caitlin Woolsey, co-hosted with Caroline Fowler, with intro music by Light Chaser, audio editing by CJ DiGennaro, and additional support provided by Maggie O'Connor and Annie Jun. We acknowledge that the Clark Art Institute sits on the ancestral homelands of the Mohican people. We also acknowledge the tremendous hardship of their forcible removal from these homelands by colonial settlers. A federally recognized nation, they now reside in Wisconsin and are known as the Stockbridge-Munsee community. As we learn, speak, and gather here at the Clark, we pay honor to their ancestors past and present, and to future generations by committing to build a more inclusive and equitable space for all.